as you guys are taking out your seats, you can open up your Bibles. Say it again. As you're taking your seats, you can take out your Bibles. Next week, you can say that. Looking at Jonah 4, 1 through 11, we're finishing our study through the book of Jonah. And uh, as you heard our friend Peter read through the passage, it's kind of an interesting way to end it, is it not? The book ends by God asking a question to Jonah. If you've been here for the study, you remember that uh, the book of Jonah comes by God calling the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh, this great city of the Assyrian Empire, and call out against it, proclaim a message of repentance. Jonah says no uh, and runs the other way. He goes to, uh, down to Joppa. He's sailing on a ship to Tarshish. It's the opposite direction for Nineveh. God sent a great storm, a great wind that causes uh, the sailors to realize there's some sort of divine thing happening here. They start calling out to their gods. Jonah's asleep on the bottom of the ship. The pagans called this prophet of God to pray. And Jonah says, it's because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Uh, the sailors end up throwing Jonah overboard. The, the sea, the storm stops. The sea gets calm. Jonah is about to drown and die. And God sends this great fish. Could be a whale. Could be a shark, a large aquatic beast, the word means, to save Jonah. Jonah is in this great fish for three days. He says this prayer of thanksgiving that God saved him, used the fish. The, the whale spits, vomits Jonah up back on land. Jonah goes back to Nineveh. The word of God comes to Jonah a second time and says, go to Nineveh and proclaim, call out against it. Jonah does. He goes to Nineveh and the whole city repents. God relents from the disaster that he was going to give to the Ninevites and then, uh, you see, well, that's where we ended off last week in chapter 3, verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, remember they put on sackcloth, they, they mourned, they prayed, they turned from their evil ways. It says, verse 10, chapter 3, when God saw what they did, he turned from their evil way. God relented the disaster that he had, that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And the very next sentence where, we pick, where we're picking up the story today is, but... It displeased Jonah exceedingly. For a couple months now, my uh, almost two-month-old daughter, Addison, has started using this phrase, and it, maybe even before that, almost two years old, excuse me. Thank you, Stephanie, for your shaking your head in disapproval. For almost two, she's almost two, but for almost two months, probably more than that, she started using this word, Mine. And when we're, when we're correcting her, when we're telling her no, she's really learning this uh, really nice, profound acting of throwing herself down on the floor. Tears just immediately start streaming instantly. Her face gets disfigured. <laughs> Tears streaming. But she doesn't get what she wants. When her plans don't line up with her dad's plans or her mom's plans. And when we think about Jonah... It's almost kind of like he's throwing a tantrum here, isn't it? He's calling out to God, because you didn't do what I wanted you to, God, just kill me. He starts having a little pity party. He's not going to be one of his. His plans were different than God's. And sometimes even too, as we see these type of things, and we, as even I was just thinking about this, and it reminded me of uh, my daughter Addison, we've also seen through the book of Jonah that can it be really easy to look at Jonah's stupidity, look at his hypocrisy, and kind of distance yourself and judge him instead of looking at how are we like Jonah. And that is, that is part of, I think, the purpose, even in ending the book like this in a question, is to get us to examine our hearts. 
How are we like Jonah? How is the Jonah inside of us? And you might be sitting here thinking, well, I've never been angry at God. I mean, angry enough for, for, for me to call out to him that he would kill me. Unless anyone has? Okay. Whoops. A couple of you guys. But what do you do? Maybe there's more of you in here who maybe you have good doctrine. You know good things about God and you still don't like it. At times you hate him for it. Maybe you're not that bad. Maybe this is, maybe this, we're all in the same level playing field here. Maybe you've been shown the mercy of God and you haven't been changed by it like you should. That's the story of Jonah. Maybe you are familiar with the Christian faith. You grew up gathering, going to, the, to a church. Uh, you maybe even had Christian parents. You've gotten familiar with uh, Christianity. You've gotten familiar with the Bible, what God says about himself. One thing that we see in Jonah and one thing we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures uh, in the Israelites, we see this in the scribes and the Pharisees, is that there is a real danger with familiarity and not uh, seeking to repent and confess of sins. It is very easy to know about God and yet not have a heart for God. And it's dangerous to know about God, be shown his mercy and grace, and yet not be moved by it. Is that where your heart's at this morning? What we see in Jonah 4, 1 through 11 is... Uh, the way the story ends, the climax of the story, and we see God's deep compassion and a question that is supposed to challenge us, a question that's supposed to get us to look at our hearts. So I'm praying through this message that we will see the compassion of God in the story. We will ultimately see the compassion of God fully and completely revealed in Jesus Christ and that we will be moved by that to be more compassionate and to move out of this space changed. That's my prayer. That's what I'm hoping to do. Amen. You guys hoping to... Can you go with me on that? I pray that if we are in a spot of callousness, that God's love and compassion, if it doesn't move us, that through God's word proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, that God would crush our, our cold hearts, our callous hearts, not only for our joy, that we would be moved into a, a, a point of repentance, but for the joy of those around us, that we might be a blessing to those that we encounter. Uh, and when we come to the text, it's very clear, probably in all of, all of the book of Jonah, uh, God's characteristic revealed. Because it's, it's from a quote from the mouth of God. Uh, it says, the first thing that we see in this story is that the Lord is a gracious God. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The cool thing about the story of Jonah, everyone who asks for mercy receives it. Everyone. Pagan sailors, captains, even Jonah, and pagan Ninevites, they all receive mercy. And yet when Jonah sees mercy, guilt given on someone other than himself, he gets enraged by that. Uh, Jonah was, the Ninevites were Jonah's enemies. Why would, why would Jonah have mercy on his enemies? And, and he says in verse two, he prays to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee Tarshish. We finally see his real motive, why he didn't obey the word of the Lord. This is why I didn't obey you and I fleed to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And Jonah is like quoting scripture. He's quoting uh, uh, what God reveals himself to the people of Israel in Exodus 34. When this is from the mouth of God, he reveals this about himself. And instead of praising God for it, he's like accusing him for it. It's almost like a curse. It's, it's what he hates about God. It's, and it's really comical. 
Like you would think, when you are hearing doctrine, when, hearing, when you are hearing things about God from God's very mouth, like that's the best way, isn't it? That's like the best kind of doctrine, <laughs> when God says it about himself. And the same mercy that God showed to Jonah, the same mercy that he showed to the Ninevites is what Jonah hates about God. When Jonah experiences God's mercy, it brings thanksgiving. But when Jonah's enemies experience it, it brings rage, strong disapproval, and evil. And when you look at the story of Jonah, you can kind of break it into two parts that are parallel, that kind of compare and contrast off of each other. Chapters 1 through 2 and chapters 3 through 4. You see the parallel in chapter 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Uh, something happens. Uh, disaster happens, the disaster comes to the, uh, the sailors in chapter 1, starting in verse 2, or the end of chapter 1, excuse me, the Lord appoints a great fish. Jonah prays to God in, in the beginning of chapter 2. It says, then, the, then Jonah prayed to the Lord. You see that in chapter 4, in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord. See, God appointing a fish to save Jonah. You see, in chapter 4, God appoints a plant to save him from discomfort. But you see the contrasting difference there in which when Jonah receives mercy on himself, he prays in thanksgiving. When Jonah's enemies receive mercy, he, he prays kind of angry at God, cursing God. Even the, even the, the similarities in the prayer, it says in, in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. That word life in the Hebrew is the word nefesh, soul. It says take my life from me, for it's better to die than to live. Live is the word high. And in the same prayer in Jonah chapter Jonah chapter two verse six through seven it says I went down to the land upon I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever yet you brought my life my high up from the pit O Lord my God when my life nephesh was fainting away I remembered the Lord your God so the same two words are used right there I think it's just supposed to show us that similarity that contrast that parallel and the author is I think trying to show us contrasting how different Jonah responds when salvation comes upon him and how different he responds when salvation comes upon his enemies, those he doesn't like. And then God asks him a question in verse four. So Jonah prays out to God, oh Lord, please take my life. It's better me to die than live. I would rather die than see you show mercy to my enemies. And God says, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? God's asking a question here not because he doesn't know the answer. We know that God is all-knowing. He knows all things. But what we see throughout the Bible is that God often asks his people questions to get them to think about their hearts, to get them to examine their actions, to bring reality to bear on their current situation. Since so the beginning, after Adam and Eve sinned, they disobey God. God comes to them and says, where are you? In Genesis 3.9. We know God knew where they were. What is God doing there? When, when, when uh, Cain kills his brother Abel, God asks Cain in Genesis 4.9, where is your brother Abel? God asks Job questions to get him to examine his own heart. Where were you? Can you do this? Can you do that? Jesus asked questions of his disciples in Mark 8, 29. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked Judas a question in Luke twenty two thirty eight. 38. Judas, do you portray the son of man with a kiss? Jesus asked Peter three times in John 21, do you love me? All these questions are strategic. God is trying to get his people to examine their hearts, analyze their actions. With Jonah, he is trying to get him to examine his heart. He's trying to show Jonah his incongruent heart, his hypocrisy, how he's not getting his self-centeredness, his hypocritical heart, 
Jonah, you respond with thanksgiving when I showed you salvation, yet why are you so angry at me when I'm showing salvation to your enemies? And then verse, verses 5 through 11 is kind of the closing of the story, what, what the author of Jonah wants to leave us with. Now, some scholars, uh, both Hebrew scholars and, and other scholars, will think actually that verses 5 through 11 chronologically happen before verses 1 through 4. And, and this is something that Jonah has done uh, some people think throughout the story is that he's put different things in front of the other in more of a topical way uh, to, to pr- produce a theme and to produce a, more of a, a clear message rather than chronological order. So you could see that in, uh, in verses 5, how it says Jonah went out to the city. So maybe he preached his message, he went out to the city, he set up a booth, and he was just waiting for God to smite the Ninevites. And yet God doesn't do it. And then he says, do you do well to be angry? But whatever the case may be, if it's chronological or not, This is what the author wants to leave us with in verses 5 through 11. It says, Jonah went out of the city. He sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. Now, a booth is kind of a makeshift dwelling. It's kind of be like a tent. It would be similar to a tent. It was probably made from branches and leaves, anything that Jonah could find, but probably because of the area that they were in and in the dry climate, there wasn't a lot of timber, so Jonah didn't have like adequate uh, shelter to, to make a roof for himself. But he kind of goes up there to get a vantage point, maybe to watch, okay, is God going to come down and smite these people? I'm going to get a sweet view of, up on this hill to the east of the city. And you even see the scandalous grace of God. Like, look at God's grace. It says in verse 6, Now the Lord appointed the plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. So we, I think we can safely assume that Jonah's heart in this moment is to kind of in, in vengeance, in condemnation, in judgment. He wants to see God destroy these people. He doesn't want them to be saved. And yet God gives them a shade to comfort his head. That's crazy to me. God gives Jonah a blessing. This crabby, self-centered, hypocritical prophet gives him a good thing. He blesses him. And it, it couldn't help me think about how many times in our life does God give us things that we do not deserve when we are crabby, hypocritical, self-centered how many, things, how many good things has God given us that we don't even thank him for? Notice that. Jonah doesn't thank God. Notice, too, he becomes entitled about it. Then he becomes bitter at God for taking it away. <laughs> that ever happened with us? Hello. <laughs> says there, in, uh, end of verse 6. So God provides the shade, comes up for Jonah, saves him from his discomfort. It says there that Jonah is exceedingly glad. This is like the exact opposite of what was recorded earlier about Jonah, which he's exceedingly displeased. So the opposite here. The exceedingly glad, it, it could mean uh, great happiness, utmost joy, pleasure, uh, out of the ordinary, a large magnitude. He's getting really happy about this plant, in other words. Jonah's getting jacked about this plant. But verse 7, when the next day came up, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And a second key principle that we see from this is not only what God reveals about himself, that Jonah quotes Exodus 34, but we see that the Lord appoints life and the Lord appoints destruction. Just like the song we just sang, God gives and takes away. It is ultimately him who does it. He is sovereign. He is in control. And God appoints a worm. Notice the the word appoint. Just like he appoints a fish, he appoints a worm. He intentionally, deliberately destroys the plant and removes Jonah's shade. So that when the sun rises in verse 8, 
God also appoints a scorching east wind. The sun beats down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked God again that he might die. It is better for me to die than to live. Notice, God is appointing the plant, providing comfort. God is appointing the worm and the wind to cause Jonah discomfort. Scorching means hot, having a higher than desirable temperature, giving off heat that's causing a sensation of burning. The word beat down means to strike, to affect or afflict suddenly. This is what God is doing to Jonah. He's afflicting him with his heat, with this wind, and Jonah again cries out in anger. Jonah again is angry at God. God hasn't performed in a manner that meets my approval. I'm angry at God. I think something that we learn from the story too is that anger at God is, is suicidal. Because oftentimes when we face, when we are dealing with anger at something or someone, we can do something about it. We can lash out verbally. We can hit them. We can kill them. We can end them. We can end you know, a plant. If something gets angry at us, we can kill it. You can't kill God. You can't move God. You can't do anything to God. So the only way to escape his anger or to escape anger at him is what? Got to get yourself out of the picture. I think that's what we see here in the story. Anger at God is, is suicidal, self-destructive. We see that the Lord appoints life and he appoints destruction. And again, he's, getting, he's trying to get at Jonah's heart. It's like he's asking this question. And he asked the question again in verse nine. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well. Angry enough to die. I love how God doesn't give up on Jonah. He comes back to him a second time. He doesn't come to Jonah and say, you idiot. How many times do I have to show you this? You fool. He questions him. And notice what God did. He intentionally, deliberately destroyed the plant, the thing that Jonah was finding happiness in. God takes out of his disciplining love and grace, he takes that thing from Jonah. Jonah was exceedingly glad about the plant. God takes it out. And Jonah gets very angry, angry enough to die, and God is trying to reveal Jonah's heart. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And unlike the first time God asked the question, Jonah now responds like he, he's almost even angrier, seems like. Yeah, I do well. The word well there means just, like it's a righteous. Like he's, I do, I'm just to be angry over this plant. That's what he's saying. Angry enough to die. God is asking him, do you have the right? Are you in the right to be angry? Are you just to be angry? Like sending the storm to wake Jonah up when he's asleep on the ship, Jonah's, God is sending this great wind. He's appointing this worm to destroy and cause Jonah discomfort. Have you ever had God do this in your life? And it's an act of grace and love that he does this. He graciously removes are suddenly removes the things that you're putting happiness, hope, and comfort in, the things that your heart are, is more attached to than God. Have you ever done this in your life? Do we respond in praise when he does? <laughs> I, I could, as I was reading through this and studying this, I was praying. I found myself praying for this thing. God, show me the plants in my life. Remove them. Help me remove them. If you have to forcefully take them out, remove them. I pray he would do that for us as a church. 
that he removed the plants, the things that we are putting joy, hope, happiness, security, comfort, whatever it is in, over God. That we might see God as more satisfying, that we might see God as more comforting, that we might see God as being more uh, worthy of finding happiness in. Amen? Amen. But whether it's not destroying Nineveh and showing mercy to them, or whether it's destroying the plant and not having mercy on it, God responds the same way, or Jonah responds the same way to God. He gets angry, exceedingly displeased. And God is continually revealing that Jonah's heart is ultimately set on himself. Jonah's heart has forgotten, it's become entitled of God's own mercy that he's shown on him and his grace towards him. And like many professing Christians today, Jonah wants to receive God's grace and salvation and mercy, but he doesn't want to be changed by it. He wants the get-out-of-jail-free card. He wants the uh, fire insurance, as you say. He wants to experience, he wants to be shown God's mercy, but he doesn't want to be moved to do something about it. And God gets the final question. The last question of the book, there's no recorded response of Jonah, and it leaves us, the readers, to think about what God is doing here. I think it leaves us to ask the same question of our own hearts. God says in, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 10, The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120 thousand persons who did not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. The word pity can also be translated as compassion. So the the New American Standard Bible, that's how it translated it, compassion. It says, you pity the plant. You didn't have anything to do with it. It was fleeting. Came up in a day and and left in a night. How did you get so attached to that? You pity this plant and you don't pity the people of Nineveh. Now, the word compassion, it, it means to share the suffering of others, to feel bad for their circumstances, but it doesn't just stop there. Compassion also has an aspect of wanting to do something about it. So you're sharing in the sufferings of others, but you're moved to act. You're moved to help alleviate the suffering. You're moved to help to do something about it. It doesn't just mean to feel bad. And we see Jonah is moved to do something about this plant. He like cries out to God. And he does nothing with Nineveh. You felt compassion for a plant. You weren't invested in it. You didn't work for it. You didn't plant the seed. You didn't water it. Should I not pity Nineveh? A city of 120,000 people, persons. The word in Hebrew is Adam. means humanity. It's that this idea of, of humanity being created in the image of God, that all people deserve respect. All people are, are loved and cared for by God because they are made in the image of God. We see here that the Lord has compassion on sinners. I think this is the third big principle we see from the passage. The Lord has compassion on sinners and he has a heart for the nations. So it's human beings who don't know their right hand for their left. That's an expression for people who are morally, spiritually lost, blind, stupid, dumb. They don't know any better. And God says, and also much cattle. In other words, God is asking Jonah, should I pity Nineveh because of the cattle? At least because of that. I mean, can I do that, Jonah? I mean, you care about the plant, so would you at least care about the cattle that I can have pity on Nineveh because of the cattle? See what God is trying to get Jonah to see, a misplaced affection, misplaced compassion. Jonah is so self-centered, ultimately self-centered. 
When something affects him negatively, he gets angry. When God doesn't do what he wants, he gets angry. When he's uncomfortable, he's angry. What do we get angry about? Our uncomfort? God not giving us what we wanted? Our plans not lining up with God's plans? We get angry at God? What ultimately grips you? What grieves you? What do you have compassion on in your life that moves you? Anything? People? God says, Jonah, your comfort matters up most to you, but people matter to me. The Lord has compassion on sinners. And ultimately, we know that this story points to the compassion that is finally revealed as we flip our pages and we read our New Testaments, we read through the Gospels in Jesus Christ, who said throughout this story of Jonah that Jesus is the greater Jonah. This story points to Jesus. God calls Jonah, Jonah runs. God calls him again, he preaches repentance, and he has no compassion for the people. He's angered at God for showing repentance. God sends Jesus, he obeys the first time, and he has compassion on sinners. He goes into the city and he weeps. Luke records in 941, when he, referring to Jesus, drew near the city and saw it, he wept over it. Jesus is moved in compassion for people. Jonah is hardened without compassion for people. Luke and Matthew record many times when Jesus has compassion on the crowds. Whether it's a woman who's, who's suffering from an illness, he felt compassion for her, he calls her not to weep. He has compassion on the large crowds who don't have anything to eat. My, one of my favorite verses in Matthew 9.36, it says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That's, that's what Jesus felt when he saw his people, when he saw us. And if you're a Christian here this morning, know that this is what Jesus, this is what, how he moved upon you. He saw you in your distress. He saw you in your peril, in your situation, and he was moved to do something about it. He had compassion on you. He saw you like a sheep without a shepherd, and he moved to do something about it. Ultimately, he moved all the way to a cross. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be a man of sorrows. He took our sorrows upon himself. We saw Jonah went outside of the city. He set up camp and he was condemning the city. Jesus went inside of the city to save it. He was moved to go in. He died in our place. He was moved by compassion. Jesus saw our discomfort. He saw our evil. He saw our peril and he came to be our peace take the just wrath that we deserve upon himself upon the cross. And even as he hung on the cross and others reviled him and mocked him, those who didn't know their right from the left, those who didn't realize they were nailing the son of God to a cross, Jesus pleaded with the father, father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. They don't know their right hand from their left. Jonah went outside of the city to set up camp, cheering for judgment, wanting God to destroy. Jesus carried a cross outside of the city to be nailed to it. Jesus was killed on a cross so that we could have life through it. Have you experienced this compassion of Jesus Christ? Because I think if you have, it will, it will do something in your heart. If you haven't, we want you to experience this compassion of Jesus Christ. Is your life gripped by his mercy and his love and his grace? If not, if you don't know Jesus, I would love to talk with you afterwards. 
I would love to talk about what it looks like to have a life that's changed by the grace of God because Jesus changes everything. Amen? He's changed my life. He's changed the life of those in this church. He is continually changing this church for his glory, for our joy, for the joy of those around us. He came that we might have life abundantly. He was moved by compassion to die in our place to demonstrate his love for you. And we respond in praise and thanksgiving and rejoicing at that. As we close, I want to look at some ways that the compassion of the Lord plays out in the lives of those who have experienced his mercy and grace. If you're here and you're curious about Jesus, you want to know more, maybe you're skeptical of the claims of Christ, you're skeptical of the gospel, let me set before you two things that I think will mark those who have been transformed by the compassion of Christ. Two main things. These two things, I believe, will be evident in your heart and will grow over time in a life of repentance if you are, in fact, a child of God. Number one, a life that has been transformed by the compassion of Christ loves God above all things. God is their highest source, their supreme treasure, their utmost satisfaction, their true joy, their purest love, highest in their thoughts, truest, most committed in their love. And not, not perfectly, not all the time. There, there, are, there are highs and lows, but there is a growing love and affection for God. That's, that's spiraling upward, you could say. You're moving deeper into. Listen to some things that Jesus says about this, getting at our affections. If you don't love father or mother more than me, you are not worthy of me. If you don't renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Now, for those of us who might have grown up gathering with the church or we're pretty religious, we might consider ourselves religious, these verses make us really uncomfortable, don't they? Like, how can you hear a verse like that? You don't hate, even Jesus said, you don't hate father or mother. You're not worthy of me. Like, you don't do this, you're not mine. I have, I have no dominion and rule and lordship over your life. What is Jesus getting at here? Are your affections for God growing and are they the priority in your life? Is that ultimately who you're seeking to love most? These verses, I think, as, as those who might have grown up in church make us really uncomfortable because for us who are more familiar, we can really know a lot about God. We can know about God and yet not love him. We can try to justify or, or look at ways of of even proving our love to him. Like, God, look at, how, look at how frequently I gather with the church. Look at how much I read my Bible. Look at all these good things that I do. Look at all the ways that I serve for you. And you're placing your hope and confidence in the things that you do above Jesus and what he has done. And the challenging thing about this is that it's hard to fabricate true love for God. Deep down, you know it inside your heart. You're performing for God. You're trying to prove your love for God. I think what these verses do and what the story of Jonah does is it shatters that. Because we see in Jonah a prophet, a man who knew God. He knew that God was gracious and merciful, and he hated him. Should that not challenge us and convict us? It's dangerous to us that we might know God, that we might be familiar with him and hate him and not be moved to do anything about it. Is that just me? It's scary. When you sing about Jesus, when you hear about the gospel, you see his redemptive work on the cross, are you moved by it? If not, friends, your heart is in a very callous place 
That's a dangerous spot to be in. I pray that we can fight against what we see in Jonah, what we see in the heart of familiarity that brings indifference, that brings contempt, or even brings anger at God. And I pray that the God will bring us to repentance if that's where we're at this morning. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. In other words, love God above all things. This is what God commands us to do. So I think when we have been gripped by the grace of God, this is what we will do. We will respond in love, loving God above all things. Those who have been transformed by the grace of God love God above all things. And number two, which is out of number one, is those who have been transformed by the grace of God, those who have been changed by the compassion of Christ, love people. They love people. If we say we love God, we must also love people. Notice how out of sync Jonah's heart is with the heart of God. Notice where he places his happiness and his joy. Exceedingly glad in a plant. Exceedingly angry in mercy. He has more compassion for a fleeting pleasure than for the souls of Nineveh. And when seeing Nineveh get blessed, he becomes bitter. Notice God's heart. Doesn't seem to give a rip about the plant, right? He caused it to grow one day and he destroys it the next day. What does God care about? People, the souls of Nineveh. He cares about this great city. Jonah found joy in his comfort, what he desired, what he liked, and he did not care for the souls of the lost. And it forces us to ask the question, do our desires, do my desires for comfort, for earthly pleasures outweigh my desire for God and my love for people? And here's what I found. Here's what I've seen in my own heart and in the hearts of of the church as we've been planting and moving forward as a church plant the last couple of years. As we're seeking to proclaim the gospel, as we're seeking to make disciples, as we're seeking to live in response to Jesus Christ, as we're seeking to engage those around us who don't know Jesus and be the hope and the light to those around us, as we seek to build relationships with those people, it is so easy to desire worldly comforts above people. It is so easy to desire worldly comforts over a desire to see others meet Jesus. It is so easy to not have compassion on those who are outside the faith. I've seen this in my own life, and God has revealed this to my calloused, deadened, hardened heart in this way through the book of Jonah. I pray he's doing the same for you. God's I pray that he would break us of our callousness, that he would reveal to us in deeper, clearer ways how unworthy we really are to receive the compassion of Christ. That we are not any better to those around us. That see, We would also see the brokenness in our own hearts. We would see our incongruent hearts, how we're pleasuring other things above God, and we would be moved to repentance, to want to please God, to desire him above all things, to love those as God has loved us. I pray that this would happen through Jonah. And as we progress as a church, that God would use this study that we've gone through to shake us out of that that we might come back to the story over and over again and realize how we are like Jonah, how incongruent our hearts can be. Because until we have hearts for God, until we are growing and having a heart like God's for our city, we really won't love those around us like God does. We really won't seek anything to do about it. Or we won't really seek to do anything about it. We might have a conversation here or there, We might enjoy serving with our gospel community once a month. 
We might volunteer in parachurch ministries. We might have neighbors over. We might get excited about what others are doing. We might add mission to our schedule. We might even throw a block party. But it won't be our passion. It won't be our love. It won't drive us and motivate us to pray. It won't drive us to actively, intentionally seek to love those around us. We will fall back into this fault mode of loving self and loving comforts above Christ. We may fill our schedules with seeing family and friends and people that we enjoy, but we're referring to mission, engaging lost people, people that are unlike us, who talk different than us, who vote different than us, who have a different skin color than us. We're not really going to enjoy it. We're not really going to do it. It'll be an afterthought. It'll be something you try to fit into your schedule. It'll be something that you think about when your gospel community leader reminds you. When he asks you a question, you think, oh, let me just say something real quick. Let me think about all the times the last six months that I've done something along those lines so it looks like I've been doing something. (laughs) Examine your hearts, my friends. Look at how you spend your time. Examine your thoughts. Look at the fruit in your life and examine its roots. Where is your heart? What are you believing? And in my study through this passage this week, God has revealed to me callousness and complacently how little I am moved by the compassion of Christ to do anything about it. I can be so self-centered in my salvation. I am like Jonah. Because what I want is to not be like Jonah. I want to be like Christ. I want to be like Jesus. I want to have a deep compassion for the lost. I want to look at, I want to pray for Des Moines. I want to pray for the Northwest. I want to pray for Seattle, the greater area, and weep over the city. That's, that's what I want my heart to do that. I want to feel that. I want to be moved by compassion so that I actually start doing something. I align my schedule along those ends. I don't just try to fit it in. I don't just think, well, you know, I'm, I'm a church planter. I'm leading a church who's seeking to engage lost people. I guess I should be doing something. Like, I really want to have a heart for the lost. I want this church to have a heart for the lost. Do we want to go there? Do we want to have that heart together? I pray we do. If you're here this morning and you don't want to reach the lost, pray for repentance. And if you don't want to pray for repentance, I say this in love, there are many other churches in Des Moines that are content with you coming and gathering with them. I want, I want to be about God and what he has called us to. Not enjoying ourselves, not enjoying comforts, but seeing Christ glorified among the nations. And we're not going to do that if we're so focused on ourselves and what we want and our comforts and our plants. God, would you smite our plants for your glory so that we might find you more satisfying. Amen? We can be just like Jonah when we don't want others around us to be saved, whether it's active anger. And you might think, I'm not like Jonah. I'm not angry at God showing mercy to others. I mean, I, I, I like seeing others saved. I love hearing testimonies of God's grace in the lives of those around me. But we can be just like Jonah when we are complacent, when we are passive, when we are recluse, when we fill our schedules with busyness, when we neglect or we're full of ignorance. I don't want to be out of line with the will of God. I want to love those who God loves. I want to have compassion on those who God has compassion. I want to have a heart that beats like God's heart beats. 
I want to have a heart that's in rhythm with God. I want to experience the compassion of God more deeply and more clearly, more really, so that it spills over. It's so evident to those around me in my life. That's what I want. I want this for us. Because the more that we are in tune with the heart of God, the more we will feel compassion on those who are outside of the family of God. Those who, apart from God's grace, are ignorant of the truth. Those in the city who don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know why they're here. They have no purpose in life other than eat, drink, and be merry. They don't know the supreme satisfaction and joy that comes in God. They don't know what they should be spending their lives on. They're wasting them. And God, I ask that he would refresh us, that he would lead us to repentance, that we would respond in greater love for God and love for those around us. Let's pray. Father, now, would you refresh me? Would you refresh this church? Would you refresh us with your spirit? Would your kindness and your grace lead us to repentance? Father, would you remind us of all the ways that you have been merciful and compassionate to us? Would you reveal to us in new, newer ways, fresh ways, your kindness in our lives that we might respond in repentance? Would you encourage those who feel like giving up? Would you challenge and confront those who are placing worldly comforts above eternal consequences? Father, we want to please you. We want to love you. Father, I thank you that ultimately you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross while we were unworthy sinners. Father, that like the Ninevites, we did not know our right hand from our left. We were lost. We were blind. We couldn't see. We didn't know you. We were corrupt. We were evil. And Father, you sent Jesus Christ to rescue us from our peril. You sent Jesus Christ to be our comfort and to save us from our discomfort, our evil, our suffering. Father, that you loved us enough to do something about it. Father, your word says God so loved the world that he gave. Father, would this love that you have shown us cause us to go? Would we love others as you have loved us? Father, somehow with this message, with this time together this morning, encourage us and spur us forward. Would we love one another? Would we love those around us with the same love that you have shown us for your glory and for our joy? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.